Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello, and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Felicity Stedman, longtime mediator, head of faculty at CEDA's Mediation Skills Training Course, founder and director of Conflict Dynamics in South Africa, and an all-round wonderful human. So welcome, Felicity. Hi, Laura. Lovely to be here. I'm very glad to have you here because, like many superheroes, you have a particular origin story in the field of conflict transformation and mediation. You weren't bitten by a radioactive spider in this case, but I understand that from a very young age, you were convinced that mediation and dialogue were essential to conflict transformation. Yes, well, I grew up in South Africa. I was born in 1959 into an apartheid environment, an apartheid state, and from a very young age became aware of the inequalities in the society in which I was growing up. I think particularly because my parents were very much anti-apartheid and sort of liberals, and also because It was very visible in terms of separate buses for different racial groups. And I remember taking the buses to school and being conscious of being on buses for white people and seeing black people getting on other buses. And my mother gave me a letter some years ago that she had written to my father in which she talks about how I said to her, why can't the government just talk to the people about their needs and interests instead of shooting them? I'm absolutely convinced that the problems will be resolved more peacefully. And that was in the late 60s, so I was probably about 10-ish. And it was at a time of protest in the country. I don't know which protest it was. But really, from a very young age, I was very conscious of First of all, the inequities, inequalities, inequities surrounding us, but also of the importance of talking to people and trying to resolve things through talking, through dialogue. And that really took me on then to when I was considering my career, to finding a career where I would be helpful in society and promoting dialogue. And I did a a four-year honours degree in social work, working in impoverished communities during those four years, which was a real wake-up call for a young white South African, being in impoverished uh, communities or townships, as they're called, and schools in those townships, and really seeing the impact of apartheid on children and families and the degree of conflict that the system was causing. So I finished my degree, and by the end of it, realized or felt that really what I would be doing as a social worker was band-aiding and really just putting patches on a broken system, an unequal, unfair, broken system. And that didn't seem to me to be what I really wanted to be doing. And yet clearly you did end up in the mediation field. So how did you move from this cynicism about social work and its impact to actually becoming part of the dialogue process. So I immediately moved into the industrial relations world because that was in 1981, the one area in South Africa where liberalization was happening, largely because 
the trade union movement had, well, it was banned prior to 1981, but there was so much unrest that the labor laws were liberalized and black workers could start joining legal trade unions. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to me to be an area for an amazing amount of dialogue, especially in a society where there was no possibility for dialogue at that stage around the political system. So I got involved in labor relations and worked in a number of different organizations, mostly third party type organizations that were working with both management and trade unions. I did work for a short while for a company. And in all those experiences, I thought I really like that role at the end of the table or on the one side of the table where I can help people talk across the table rather than being on one or other side. And so I trained as a mediator in 1989 and became involved in the labor relations world as a mediator. So that was really how my journey began. It's an incredible story, definitely. And so, I mean, at that time, was mediation very common or doing mediation training? Well, in the early 80s, when the law was reformed to legitimize black trade unions, the mechanism for dispute resolution for all workers was that you had to go to what was called a conciliation board with a dispute, individual or collective dispute first. And then after that, you went to the labor court, or it was called the industrial court. And those conciliation boards were supposed to be a mediation opportunity for mediation and working things out. But they were very discredited, obviously, because they were part of the apartheid government machinery. Mm -hmm. And all of the conciliators and all the industrial court judges were all white and 99% men. And so it was very intimidating for black workers to come into those forums. And they really didn't believe they were having going to have a fair hearing. So in about 1984, a group of human rights lawyers and academics and business people, a couple of trade unionists, all of like mind, got together and said, let's try and establish an independent mediation service, independent to the statutory conciliation boards, call it mediation, not conciliation, make it a different kind, slightly different kind of process, and encourage unions and management to use mediation instead of industrial action, and instead of struggling through this really very ineffective statutory process. And it had support from, it had really strong support from big business, Mm -hmm. and sort of, I would say, more liberal business to begin with. And then it also had strong trade union support, and we had fantastic support from overseas funders. Mm -hmm. So all the major European, British, and American funders who were funding anti-apartheid activities funded the organization. It was called the Independent Mediation Service of South Africa, IMSA. Mm -hmm. And I joined it in early 1989. And we worked very closely with the trade unions, with management, providing mediation in the case of individual disputes and collective wages and conditions of employment or retrenchments, redundancies, and we then then in the late 1989 the country was in turmoil absolute turmoil politically and there was a state of emergency townships were on fire people were being 
killed by the police and the and the army. And so we started talking about what role we could play in community conflict and and considering all our experience in IMSA, what could we do to facilitate peace building, peacemaking in communities? And it was quite a difficult conversation because quite a few of the stalwarts, sort of labor relations stalwarts said, no, we can't dilute our energies in the labor field because that field needs, that whole sector needs to be, or those relationships need to be stable for any political transition to take place. But at the end of the day, those who argued in favor of sharing our experiences into community dispute resolution prevailed, and we set up the Community Conflict Dispute mm-hmm. Resolution Service. And quite quickly, it was approached by the National Peace Accord, which was established in the early 90s as a result of a, a dialogue that was happening between churches mainly and business over what to do about the conflict in the country and the political transition. And so the National Peace Accord was established. They then approached IMSA for facilitators and trainers for community dispute resolution committees, etc. And I became involved through IMSA in the National Peace Accord as well. And that involved working in townships, and townships are neighborhoods that were created by the apartheid government separate from major cities on the outskirts of every city would be a township where black people were relocated and so so those were really on fire and the national peace accord was established to help at a very grassroots level manage the conflict in those communities so there was a national peace accord sort of constitution or agreement drafted and signed but then at a local and regional level there were dispute resolution committees established throughout the country and who was actually on those committees what role did they play in the whole process they were a mix the committees were a mix of community representatives so trade unions women's groups local activists all sorts of community representatives as business as well meeting with representatives of the police the army and any any interest groups in that community often townships were closely linked to particular businesses mm-hmm. so the businesses that were you know employing people from that community might also be involved and we would have regular meetings at the local dispute resolution committees to talk about things like a big march about to happen, a protest march about to happen, or a big funeral of someone who'd been shot by the police about the the funeral about to happen. And the conversation in the local dispute resolution committee was how to make that happen in a peaceful way. So there would be peace monitors who would have a bib saying national peace accord, who would literally be holding hands to separate the police from the community. There would be an agreement or maybe factions within the community, for example, ANC, African National Congress versus the Encarta Freedom Party, IFP, and separating warring factions with peace monitors. 
the degree, for example, that the police and the army would stay so many meters away from the march so that they wouldn't be a threat or incite any response. And that if there was a need for any police intervention or the police felt they needed to get involved, then there would be wireless communication, walkie-talkie communication about what would happen. So to contain the potential for violence. So I was involved in a couple of the local dispute resolution committees and also quite closely involved in training of those committees in how to resolve conflict. What is conflict? How to, what skills do you need? What process skills do you need? And those were amazing experiences where you would have in the same room for a weekend workshop, people who were absolutely on the opposite sides of the political spectrum. And I remember one particular situation where we had this exercise where people had to had a set of questions and they had to find someone in the room that was unknown to them and had to ask them these questions and then introduce them to the group using their answers. And so two men got together and one of the questions was, tell me about your family. And the one guy said, well, very sadly, my son died. He was shot on the border um, in Angola in the conflict between South Africa and Angola, you know, beyond Namibia. And the other guy said, well, my son was shot in Angola as well. The one guy's son had been shot by the South African Defence Force, and the other guy's son had been shot by Umkuntu Wesizwe, who were the armed wing of the African National Congress. Mm -hmm. And so these two men in Johannesburg had both had sons who'd been shot by their constituencies in a foreign land. And they then, you know, just burst into tears. And then the, some of the other questions were, you know, what's your favorite sport? And they both loved rugby. And what's your favorite TV program? And they both loved some other TV program. So the potential for common ground was just, you know, very sad common ground, but also common ground that people could be uh, relaxed about and, and be happy about. And uh, so those experiences were absolutely seminal. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that the justice and reconciliation systems were quite racialized. Were they also gendered? I should just say that as a woman, it was very challenging because there weren't very many women involved in, in this work, particularly not at the senior regional dispute resolution committee or national levels. There were women in, in the local dispute resolution committees, the women's groups, the, the church groups, etc. There were definitely women on the ground and they were very strong and very important. Mm -hmm. But the facilitators and the trainers were mostly men. And I was just itching to be more and more and more involved, but I had two tiny children, one mm. born in 1990 and one born in 1987. And that, although my husband was a you know 100% involved father, 110% involved father, um, that um, pull between you know being involved and trying to make a difference but having the responsibilities of a parent and also not wanting to worry people, you know, because there I'd be hopping in my car, driving off into a, literally a war zone and, and then coming back to this 
suburban reality, alternative reality, which was rather strange. (laughs) It sounds bizarre. It must have been quite the strange thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating story. And I'd like to just circle back for a minute, if you don't mind, because when you mentioned doing mediation with the trade unions and the businesses, right, and you highlighted that previously the conciliation boards in place, they were all white, there were structures of apartheid. I mean, how were you able to build trust in this mediation service? Because obviously you were there and you were white. And how is it that you managed to get them to trust you in the face of this idea of, well, the white people are here and they're going to actually be causing problems in the situation? How did you build that trust? Yes. Well, many of the people slightly older than me that were involved in the establishment of the organization had been politically active in the student movement in the 70s. And a number of them had been banned, as as it was called in South Africa, under house arrest and that sort of thing for activities that the state regarded as subversive. So they had credibility because of their very real actions and experiences. And then also I had I had got involved, when was it? Yes, as a student. And then just after graduating, I'd become involved in various other activities like an organization called the, the Workers' Aid Project, which was a, there were lots of these NGOs, little NGOs trying to do things. And this was a workers' education project. And it was a little project that was, open most hours to provide advice, a bit like a citizen's advice bureau for workers on their rights, you know, unclaimed wages that were being denied or unfair dismissal, all that sort of thing. And some of the people associated with that organization were people who'd been in detention. In fact, one particular person, Neil Agate, was murdered by the apartheid police in the the notorious John Forster Square, as it was called, arrested and and died in detention. So all those associations build credibility, you know. So I've always said about credibility and neutrality as a mediator, you can't just switch it on and switch it off and say, I am neutral, I am impartial. You have to walk the talk in everything you do. And so it comes down to being involved in things that demonstrate that you you care and that you are genuine about helping people have good conversations, but also achieve their human rights. And and then also really down to the little things like how you greet people, how you how you show respect in the moment. And so there's a particular way of shaking hands with black people in South Africa. I wouldn't presume to do it automatically, but if you are about to shake someone's hand and you get the feel that they're going to do the handshake, then, you know, be able to do it easily. I learned Zulu, so I could speak very basic Zulu to people I was working with. And so a lot of it is just really down to how you treat people and how you work with people. And I do remember a colleague saying to me, because I went, I left IMSA after a couple of years when I had my second child or after having my second child in order to work more closely on a another community dispute resolution project. And she said, oh, it's such a pity you're going. It's amazing how quickly you've built up credibility with the trade unions, because it was a very precious commodity that you had to work carefully on and 
and retain. I mean, I would have a natural credibility with management who were white at that mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. but not with black trade unionists who were predominantly men. Mm-hmm. But that just changed with, yeah, I suppose the way I worked and 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 I enjoyed it, you know. And the organisation ha- overall had good credibility for treating people fairly. And we also arbitrated, and so I was also an arbitrator. And so the decisions coming out of arbitration and the outcomes of mediation were regarded as even-handed and fair. And so that builds credibility. You know, the outcomes leave people with a sense that, yeah, I, I got a good outcome, or if I didn't get what I want, I can understand why. Mm-hmm. And that builds credibility. Incredible. I mean, it's a really inspirational story you've presented, honestly. And something that really strikes me is that earlier when you were talking about this letter with your mother, you were described as sensible. And yet, you know, most people's idea of being sensible doesn't involve driving into war zones or trying to solve, you know, solve the problem of peace in South Africa, right? So it's really incredible and speaks to your character that part of being sensible is this dedication to justice, is bringing people together. So huge kudos for that, to say the least, right? Well, I should also just say that, you know, it was from my point of view and my colleagues and friends, it wasn't difficult. It was an unambiguously obvious position to take. And so, and it felt as though we were all on the moral high ground, you know, mm-hmm. being anti-apartheid. And my contribution was tiny compared to many, many people. I mean, really, people lost their lives, people were in exile, people were in prison, you know, for many, many years, as we know. And uh, But I had my fair share of visits from the security police and all those sorts of scary things things. And that was the place we lived in, which was really pretty ghastly. I'm getting a lot of chills here, Felicity. So thank you so much for sharing. And so after this period then, because you left EMSA, I mean, I understand that your mediation journey took you into different fields of work. Was that then or was that later on? Well, it started out in labour management work and then through the peace accord more into peacemaking at a sort of more community level between factions within communities. But at the same time, I got involved in the more typical community dispute resolution within a community. And so that was in a in a township called Alexandra Township, where we had a project going called the Community Dispute Resolution Trust. And it was based very much on the model, the sort of North American model of community dispute resolution centers, where you'd set up a center, train local mediators, you know, it would be a community resource and disputes within the community would be brought to the center to be resolved by local mediators. And the reason for this was that law and order had really broken down so fundamentally that, and and people didn't trust the police, didn't trust taking a matter to a police station, that kangaroo courts, as they were called, were rife in that community in particular. So people, and people would be disciplined by the community in very brutal ways, you know, beatings and you've heard of necklacing, you know, pulling a tire over someone, setting them alight, that sort of thing. And so the community dispute resolution or community dispute resolution trust, the idea there was to establish, to build capacity within a community to resolve conflicts over neighborhood issues, mm-hmm. barking dogs and noisy neighbors, 
And so I got involved in that. And that was after spending a six-month period in America, in Harrisonburg, in Virginia, where they had a local community dispute resolution service that I volunteered at. And just seeing the power of mediating between neighbors, between businesses in a little community, a tiny community. And I remember doing facilitating a matter between the volunteer firefighters in Harrisonburg. <laughs> and, and, you know, here these volunteers giving their time to the local community, but they are all in conflict with each other. And mm -hmm. so using mediation skills to just help at that very, very local level. So I did that. So that took me into sort of another aspect of community mediation. And then when I came to the UK in 2003, I discovered that actually the dispute resolution service here, ACAS, does a good job with labor-related, employment-related disputes, and that unless I was going to work for ACAS, there wasn't any possibility of freelance work of that kind. And that's really what I wanted to do. So I found out about CEDA, the Center for Effective Dispute Resolution, and I did their course, and that took me into commercial mediation, and then more recently into workplace mediation, because in the UK, things have sort of come full circle, for me certainly, where there wasn't much opportunity for employment and workplace mediation because ACAS was doing a good job. But actually, workplace mediation has developed um, very strongly because employers are realizing that they shouldn't be waiting until they get an ACAS claim. They need to deal with things much, much earlier. Mm -hmm. And the guidelines from ACAS encourage early resolution anyway, informal as opposed to formal. So I've kind of come full circle where I now do a lot of employment and workplace. And I am constantly thinking back to my earlier years in industrial relations and drawing on that experience. But then I also do commercial mediation and disputes referred by the Court of Appeal, for example, or other basic commercial contract, often contractual matters. Yeah, so I've never ventured into family mediation. I had one... One, one left for the checklist. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I had one, one horrible experience or scary experience where I was asked to mediate, this was a long time ago, between a husband and wife over just assets. So it wasn't sort of family mediation. It was really just assets. Mm -hmm. And it came down to the dog and the dresser, the kitchen dresser. And I just, <laughs> it was so emotional yeah. and so out of control. And I, I think I was not mature enough and not skilled enough to know how to deal with that level of emotion that I was so frightened of it. So I've never done that kind of mediation. I mean, I think it's understandable. I once had a mediator tell me a very similar story, but it wasn't over a kitchen dresser. It was over a toilet brush. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. And so this entire emotionally divorce started to really hinge on it's the toilet brush and who owns it. And I, I have no idea what the rest of the story was, but it, you know, it was obviously highly emotional. Yes. It wasn't really about the toilet brush, but it's amazing how these objects <laughs> gain their yes. life on their own, right? Yes. We did manage to reach agreement on visitation rights about the dog. <laughs> I was going to say the dresser. <laughs> it's important to visit one's kitchen dresser. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. And so given you've worked in these very different fields, I mean, 
It's, it's quite unusual because you'll often see people who started in that sort of commercial area of mediation and then they'll, they'll do that for a few years and then they'll go, oh, why don't we use this in the social context, in the community context? And all the community media is like, <laughs> we're here, we exist. And so you've seen really the full spectrum and you've gone the other way around. So do you see any fundamental similarities or differences between these different types of mediation or these different contacts of mediation or perhaps the skills required in these different mediations? Yeah, a lot of, of the difference is really around process. I think uh, with commercial mediation, it's very often one day event with some work up front in the preparation and party contact. And then it's a, a day or maybe a two days, but it's quite contained and it's quite dispute focused. And it comes to an end and the end is the conclusions written down and there's an agreement. However, in certainly community or political type conflicts, it's much more drawn out. You have to think much more carefully about process design. You have to think much more carefully about who needs to be at the table. And so there's a lot of work up front with stakeholders to help them set the table up appropriately and bring the right people to the table, ensure that those people have mandates and that they have authority from their constituencies. And then the actual process can be very drawn out. And then the, the follow-up, and the, well, the potential for deadlock is greater because it's often not focused on a single dispute. It's it's about relationships and you know community engagement, and so it's a much more I'd, I'd call it more facilitation really than mm. mediation. And then in in terms of workplace mediation, there again, it's not a one day wonder. In, it's a staged process because it involves the employer telling the employees to go and sort their problem out. And we know that mediation works better where people voluntarily come. Mm -hmm. So you have to turn it from being told to go to, oh, yes, I do want to go. Mm -hmm. And so that early engagement is really critical. So I would speak to the party on the phone or in a Zoom call, then meet them individually to hear what has happened, to build rapport, to build a solid understanding of the mediation process and what to expect and how to prepare. And then we would have the mediation day, which might actually be two half days, and then some follow-up sometime later. And of course, in workplace mediation, you're accountable to the person who appointed you, to the employer. Well, you're accountable to both. You're accountable to the people in the mediation, but also to the employer. So being really, really clear about their expectations, confidentiality of the process and what you may and may not be able to achieve or convey, and being clear that it's not an investigation, there won't be a report or a finding. So whereas in commercial mediation, especially where they're lawyers, they know what mediation is, they know what the parameters are, they come in and you're really helping them sort it out. In workplace mediation, you are helping them sort it out, but you're also educating so much about and modeling effective communication skills and processes and helping them really try and do it better next time around. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. 
So yeah, process is very is different, very different. And so I don't think you can just hop from one to the other. You need training in the, so you can do a basic mediation skills course for commercial mediation, mm-hmm. you know, general mediation. But then if you're going to be a workplace mediator, you need specialist training. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you need specialist training. It's different. You can't be a mediator for every situation. But the principles around confidentiality without prejudice, neutrality, impartiality, all of those are basically the same. And and all the all the relationship skills will be very similar in terms of building trust, rapport building, decent communication skills, ethics. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you for that insight. And I'm really glad you said we can't just jump from one to another, because I think sometimes that's a trap we can maybe fall into. But moving on to something else, I'd really like to know something that has surprised you as a practicing mediator, something you expected to work but didn't, or perhaps the reverse. I think the thing that always surprises me is how, no matter how much self-awareness I might think I have or how much bias training I have done and do, I'm always surprised at how quickly I'm drawn to one or the other side. It usually evens out quite quickly because, you know, I listen to the first party and I think, wow, that just sounds so reasonable. And what could the other side possibly say? And then I hear the other side and think, oh, this is just as reasonable, if not more reasonable. And so it just affirms for me all the time the work you have to do as a mediator to step back and maintain your impartiality. And it's not just in what you say, it's in how you look. I had a mediation recently where the lawyer for the one party, barrister for the one party said, I can see Felicity, you you don't agree with that. And I said, "Uh, but why? I haven't said anything. And he said, well, you're frowning. (laughs) And I said, well, I do have frown lines. I struggle to, I need some Botox or something. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, he caught me in that moment. And I, it's not that I was being critical. I was just wondering how, what his client was saying was going to sit with the the people next door. And I mean, actually, I did find... (laughs) their position rather difficult Uh, and clearly I was giving some of that away and so that's what surprises me all the time and I think the other thing that surprises me is you know you never really know what people's bottom lines really are and where they will go to in a mediation so just when I think this is not going to work there's movement Mm -hmm. and so it may be a shifting mandate or authority. It may be some good reality testing I've done and they've gone away and they've thought, well, we hadn't thought about that. Maybe it's something in the process that has influenced it, like bringing the lawyers together to do a bit of knocking heads over the merits. But you kind of have to expect the unexpected and you just can't give up, you know, and and just keep pushing. And Well, not pushing, but keep encouraging people to... Keep facilitating the experience. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Great. Yeah. And so if you were starting out again today, what advice would you give yourself? 
this is going to sound really weird. I I think I would do a law degree because it does sound weird. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the social work degree was incredibly valuable from the point of view of opening my eyes to the world of inequality really and poverty, etc. I would then go on and do a law degree because actually in the real world, out there, the drivers of power in organizations are very often lawyers and the way they think is really important to understand and so my work as an arbitrator was has always stood me in incredibly good stead to be able to talk to people about their alternative in rights so to say well take me through the merits here how will it be giving evidence? Have you been cross-examined before? Tell me about your risk assessment, your chances of success before a judge or before a jury. Understanding trial process and just being able to speak that language. I wouldn't practice as a lawyer, but just understanding mm -hmm. that I think would give me the confidence, the credibility that unfortunately is helpful. For the non-lawyers, it's really, really difficult. I think very often people think I'm a lawyer. And I mean, if they say, mm -hmm. well, as as you would know as a lawyer, of course I disabuse them of it, but they, when they're choosing mediators, whether you're a lawyer or not a lawyer is a huge factor. And in such mm -hmm. a competitive market, that's something that would help. If I was, if yeah. I was you know, to dedicate my life to, to peacemaking, or family mediation, then I wouldn't think about it. But if you want to be involved in mainstream commercial mediation or even labor management mediation, I mean, I have labor management legal qualifications. I've done a higher diploma in labor law and that sort of thing in a law school. And that was really helpful. But to develop an international commercial mediation practice, you'll be chosen more quickly as mm -hmm. a lawyer. That's the sad, the long and the short sad fact. Yeah. Well, okay. I've never aspired to be a commercial media in anyway. So but we're good. We're good. Yes. <laughs> Super. So then as a final question, what is something that inspires you in your work? What inspires me? I, I think I really fundamentally believe that if you can get people to talk you can achieve a huge amount you, you can help them achieve a huge amount my husband often says to me why do we have to sit down and talk about it so I said well you do need to do that you you, you do need to actually have a process sit down and have a way of talking about it be it something happening at home or something happening more formally between parties you need a safe space with a framework of an agreement some rules, some ways of working with things, ways of talking. And so what inspires me is that if you can just get people to take that leap of faith into that process, into that space, you can achieve a huge amount. And so often people go from, I'm in conflict with the other person to, and I'm going to get them. I'm going to find a way to 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 uh, punish them to get them back them. or to just yeah. them even yeah or, or or get someone to decide that I'm right and mm. so and on that journey between the conflict and the punishment 
the use of power or the use of a rights-based approach like arbitration or litigation. There's a whole lot of things that you can do. And so I feel inspired by encouraging people to do that or when they're in the bad place already down the track with power or litigation, Ukraine, for example, and Russia, you can always come back to the table. You can always, so helping people you know, find their way back to the table. You don't have to give up on the power or give up on the litigation to talk. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it is about saving face and helping people sort of just step to the side of the process or the conflict and just see if they can work it out in a different way. So I find that inspiring. I've just seen it work again and again, especially coming from South Africa, where we are very consensus oriented, although it's still a very conflictual society for other reasons, not so much to do with politics as to do with crime and the economy, etc. And so I've seen it work. Well, look, Felicity, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those interested in learning more about you or your work, where can they find you? On my website, felicitystedman.co.uk. Fabulous. All right. Well, until next time, for everybody else, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.